Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons at greendreamer.com slash support. And this month, our work is also supported by Conscious Step, a fair trade, got certified organic cotton socks brand that donates to a cause for every pair sold. What really stood out to me is not just the fun variety of nature inspired prints that their socks have, but also the variety of causes they support, many of which help to address social and environmental injustice from rainforest and ocean conservation, access to clean water, education, combating violence, and more. If you're an avid listener of this show, you know how important it's been for us to really find the connections between different social and environmental concerns. And I just really appreciate our alignment there. So next time you need new socks for yourself or for loved ones, you can shop their socks at ConsciousStep.com and use our code GREENDREAMER for 20% off. Again, it's ConsciousStep.com and GREENDREAMER for 20% off. And so although I am someone that obviously advocates for more conscious consumption, when we reduce the sustainability movement to something that someone has to buy, it has very dire implications about who can participate in this movement, because obviously we know that the sustainability movement has had an exclusionary approach when it comes to class and race. And so that has become a lot of the predicating values of my work of decolonizing the fashion industry and what exactly that means. That was Aditi Meyer, someone I'm so honored to call a friend. She's a photographer, journalist, and sustainable fashion blogger whose work explores the intersection of style, sustainability, and social justice. Her platform is adime.com, and it looks at the fashion industry through a lens of decolonization and intersectional feminism. So while a lot of people may assume that the exploitation of garment workers is a problem over there in the so-called developing world where a lot of our clothes globally are made, and yes, that is a huge issue that needs to be talked about more and addressed, For the past two years, Aditi has also been working closely with Los Angeles garment workers to address and organize against the labor exploitation happening right here in Los Angeles in the United States. So we're definitely going to go into this today. And we're also going to talk about how our modern fashion industry still reflects its colonial history, especially when looking at the supply chain and what the decolonization of the fashion industry might look like what the pandemic has revealed of the pre-existing injustices and exploitation embedded within the industry, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. So for me, I wouldn't say I was someone that had this innate affiliation to the outdoors or nature. (laughs) My story is not like that. I come from an immigrant background, a working class family. And I would say like many first gen immigrant households, you're often tasked with survival. But I would say that the immigrant experience, especially coming from a lower income family, informed what I like to call the soul of sustainability. So living a life of frugality, the idea of extending the life of the things you own, not seeing things as disposable. All of these ideas kind of informed a lot of my childhood and I think a lot of immigrant children as well. 
But in terms of really building a relationship with the world around me, I would say later in life, when I was around high school or going into college, I had the privilege of spending time with my grandparents who moved in with us for a while. And they really drove home a more concrete understanding of sustainability and a relationship to the earth, which they probably didn't know that that's what they were doing, but it was so inherent to our culture. So I have roots in Punjab, um, South Asian ancestry. And so I come from grandparents who are farmers in Punjab. And so when they did live with us, I think, I started to develop an interest in sustainability in my own world, often through the lens of fashion. But through my grandparents, I was really able to inform my perspective of things like stewardship of the land, reusing, creating at home. I had a grandfather who even in his 80s would take every single seed of fruit that we would eat and say, <laughs> we're planting this back in, you know, this huge log that you have that you guys have not been using. A grandmother that would make everything herself, repairing clothes, redesigning the ones we already owned. And so I often like to say that all of these experiences informed my understanding of seeing sustainability as an unlearning. Mm. So for me, sustainability is very much intertwined with a return to ancestral wisdom, my South Asian roots, unlearning ideas of wealth and like what we really should be prioritizing as a culture, a lot of ideas that were often informed by the West. And so, yes, I would say sustainability for me really is an unlearning at its core. Very often, fashion today seems to primarily, if not all about the looks, like style at a very superficial level, what color matches with what, what looks good with what, and et cetera. In the conscious consumerism space, people are certainly talking more about the how behind the process and the materials used to make our clothing, and that's really great. But in an article that you wrote for Teen Vogue, you've said that we can't stop at thinking about the ethics of labor and the environmental impacts. Can you share your insights on why this discussion crucially needs to go beyond sustainability and fair pay for the workers? And also what issue you take with the common slogan to vote with your dollars? Yeah, so once I entered the sustainable fashion space, I noticed a lot of tropes and a lot of platitudes that often define the conscious consumerism movement that I had a lot of issue with. I guess to start with, I could kind of give more context on how I came to this space, mm -hmm. which for me was the Rana Plaza factory collapse in 2013, which I think a lot of your audience might be familiar with. But for those that aren't familiar, Rana Plaza was an eight-story garment factory in Bangladesh that was operating and creating for some of the world's biggest fast fashion brands. And before the factory collapsed, it was found to have structural cracks but there was so much pressure from upper management to have workers complete orders that they returned to work and the factory collapsed the next day, killing over 1,100 people. So for some context, this happened right, right as I began my college career. And I was someone who had a passion for visuals, aesthetics, and design. But Rana Plaza really catalyzed an understanding of the fashion industry as one that was predicated on the exploitation of people, especially people of color globally. So from there, as I entered the movement, I started working with some brands. I had an internship with a local brand that employed women in India, but I noticed a lot of problematic understandings of the global north versus the global south. It was very binary and stark with this idea of a white Western consumer empowering a black or brown producer in the global south. 
And a lot of the understandings of quote unquote sustainability were completely rooted in an understanding of consumption. And so although I am someone that obviously advocates for more conscious consumption, when we reduce the sustainability movement to something that someone has to buy, it has very dire implications about who can participate in this movement, because obviously we know that the sustainability movement has had an exclusionary approach when it comes to class and race. And so that has become a lot of the predicating values of my work of decolonizing the fashion industry and what exactly that means. Right. I do feel like a lot of times sustainability today, or at least in the sustainable lifestyle, sustainable fashion space, so much of that necessarily has to be about affordability because a lot of things, when they're better made, they then become more expensive. And that becomes an issue in of itself when so much social and economic inequity already exists within this picture, which really makes the the saying to vote with your dollars maybe a little short-sighted in not recognizing the injustice embedded into this picture. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. And I think that that's the approach we need to take if we look at sustainability through a lens of you know intersectionality. It's like who can participate in this movement based on how it's been expressed thus far. And one of the things I talked a lot about is the colonial past of the fashion industry today. And so we know that the fashion industry is one that is predicated on colonial values. And when I say colonial values, I'm talking about an industry that has seen extraction and exploitation of resources, whether that's the natural environment or labor as the means for infinite financial gain. And we have to question, like, why is it that the traditional fashion industry has normalized labor exploitation? The fact that the sustainable fashion movement is an alternative niche industry, but has a huge, you know, price wall in terms of who can participate. And so I think when it comes to decolonizing the fashion industry, We have to understand how this idea of sustainability and fashion and how it currently exists is very much racialized in terms of who has buying power. As you said, the idea of voting with their dollar, who gets to represent this movement that's often tied to our understanding of beauty ideals that are very Eurocentric and how it intersects with class as well. I think the recontextualization of sustainability as a Western concept has been very damaging because as I mentioned, like, For me personally, I've come to understand that sustainability has always been a part of my my roots and my, you know, for people of color and cultures of color globally, this has it hasn't been a new concept. But the idea of recontextualizing sustainability as a consumer act, I think, is something the West has done. And it could be very damaging in terms of how we see our involvement in this movement and how we participate in this movement more, more um, importantly. Right. That's a really powerful realization that sustainability at its core, if we just really try to understand sustainability as it is, it shouldn't have anything to do with how much money you have. But the current dominant understanding of sustainability we have today is tied to conversations of how much money you have, because apparently you have to buy into this. And I think that's where when we expand the modalities through which sustainability looks like is very important right. with the fashion conversation. Obviously, it's about consuming a certain way, but more importantly, forgetting to say that we should be consuming less. 
And I think it's a it's a weird uh, bridge that folks like you and I kind of have to cross as folks that are somehow complicit in this larger system of being quote unquote bloggers. So sometimes we are pushing product, but how do we balance, you know, pushing our audiences to support folks that are doing stuff in a more ethical way, but also taking a step back and saying, you know, the most sustainable thing that you and I have is what we own or you know, recalibrating our relationship with consumption at large, which I think is often not a part of the conversation when brands are leading the narrative around sustainability. Right. That's definitely something that I've struggled with personally is balancing those two things. And as you mentioned earlier, there's often this dominant narrative of the role of the global north being consumers of fashion and luxury, and therefore even the saviors of people in the global south that provide most of the labor to uphold that global market, but that are paid for by those in the global north. And not many people stop to think about how that came to be and what is problematic about that dichotomy. So I'm wondering if you can share what our fashion industry today reveals of its colonial roots and maybe how that set us up kind of for failure and for us to have the many social and environmental issues and injustices that exist today. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. So as I mentioned, I often use the fashion industry as it traditionally stands as a parallel to how colonial models operate. And so as I said before, when I think of a colonial model, it's rooted in extraction and exploitation as the means for infinite growth. And so when we look at things like fast fashion models, Fast fashion is predicated on creating as much as you can, as fast as you can, as cheap as you can. And that will come at the expense of the environment and garment workers' rights. And so it is often an inherently violent form of production. And then kind of taking this in the context of my own culture, like being of South Asian descent, I often think back to how the fashion industry or many other industries operated in India pre-colonization. So we had the idea of localized economies and local producers, slow fashion, all of this was the norm once upon a time. But when we saw the British Raj come to India, it came alongside a lot of factories, especially for textile. And so I often like to go back to the idea of some of the first fast fashion models we saw in terms of, you know, creating institutions that were focused on output and speed to be shipped to the Birmingham and Westminster's of the world was seeing during the colonial period in India. And so we, our artists and economy was very much devastated after the presence of the British Raj. And so now, you know, the sustainable fashion industry in India is very much rooted in going back to what were the localized regional crafts within India, because India by no means is a monolith. There are so many specific crafts depending on the region, looking at what are the native plants that are native to specific sources and how we can use that in those fashion models. So a lot of it is not a new understanding of what sustainability is. It really goes back to the idea of sustainability being an unlearning and also a return to indigenous knowledge. Mm. I think a lot of the talk within sustainable fashion has been about the materials. So people are more and more conscious of, you know, organic cotton, hemp, linen, tensile, and so forth. But I'm not sure if there's enough talk about our need to decentralize these systems and to decentralize power within the industry. Because I was talking to, um, I forget the owner of some sustainable fashion brand, and I was kind of questioning the idea of, 
sustainable fashion brands needing to scale in order to have the biggest positive impact that they can have. Because we can also achieve the same positive impact by decentralizing power and having a lot of people participate in this movement in a more, I guess, equal manner. So I don't know if you have thoughts on the role of decentralizing and diversifying in in sustainable fashion. Totally. I think if we expand the idea of decentralizing to be a general concept, we can decentralize, one, our understandings of power and hierarchy when we question who has access and agency in this space. We can decentralize our understandings of wealth and specifically wealth inequality. Who benefits at whose labor? You know, amid COVID, we see that there's a push from a lot of CEOs to have garment workers go back to work. But you know, garment workers are the heart of the fashion industry, that it can't operate without this, but who is paid the least? And then that's also the idea of like reorienting our metrics of success. Again, this always goes back to the idea of extraction and exploitation as the means for infinite gain. But if we're able to reorient our metrics of success to see like, what does it mean to be a successful brand? I know a lot of brands at this point in time are grappling with the idea of degrowth. And so that doesn't mean the end of business as we know it, but it's thinking about how can we incorporate circularity and longevity as an inherent part of the business model. And so this has been a you know really interesting time because this idea of degrowth, I think, was introduced in like the 1970s, but was always seen as this like radical idea. And now it's no longer this fringe mentality. It's becoming more normative because everyone's going to have to grapple with the idea of degrowth and localizing their supply chains and things like that. And so I think we're at a critical time to really reimagine all of these systems. Right. So something that does come to mind when I think about all of this is, especially with the coronavirus pandemic that we're in, a lot of small businesses are really struggling And so what I'm seeing is a lot of these conscious businesses saying, you know, please do what you can to support us if you need something so that we can, you know, obviously support the makers that are a part of our brand. How do we how do we reconcile this? I guess it's just the system that we exist in that we need to constantly be buying things in order to do good. So what are your thoughts on how we work with that, on how you know, the whole concept of sustainability and and social good are almost tied to consumerism at this point? That's a really good question. And I think it's something that I'm grappling with as well. When I was thinking more about this idea of degrowth lately, I was like, so what does that look like, especially for those that are producing things at smaller scales that don't necessarily need to do that? And so when we what we could learn from, I think, the bigger guys in this game is like, And I think of Patagonia, who has created a business model now that is also about like taking in items that people already own and fixing those up. I think about Tesla making, which is a company that we could, (laughs) is a kind of worms of how they're operating, but they've made a lot of their patents open source to hopefully catalyze the electric car market. In terms of what it looks like for small brands, I feel like that's a place that I can't speak from because there's a lot of, you know questions to be had about people's ability to have disposable income and buying. Um, So I think I would want to flesh out my ideas more with what I could contribute to that conversation. But there's a lot of questions there of like, where do we go from here? And our inherent, you know, reliance on consumption as a society is really being, you know, 
challenge at this point in time. And so it's like, how do we operate beyond a capitalistic model? Right. It's definitely something that we can start to ask and start to question and start to dream of more about our possibilities going forward. And clearly our history of global injustice may have led to the lack of representation in fashion at large, but also within the ethical and eco-fashion sphere. And obviously people today know the importance of inclusivity, if not at least for the visual representation of diversity, to tell that story that everyone has a place here. So more and more, we are seeing more models of color in the marketing campaigns of different brands. At a deeper level, though, what does sustainability miss out on when we simply strive for diversity as tokenism and not as an integral part of the underlying process and decision making? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And this conversation around representation, I think, has often looked very face value. I think about you know, conversations around a lot of bigger brands co-opting the conversation around social justice for their own um, gain. I think about the work of Hoda Kadabi, who's an amazing ally in this space, and her work kind of looked at Nike's campaign to put more hijabi women at the forefront of their campaigns, you know, as a win for representation. But how do we reconcile that when Nike is still producing from sweatshops in countries like Indonesia, which is a predominantly uh, a workforce that is Muslim women and exploiting those. And so I think when we talk about this conversation about representation, we have to think about it through a lens beyond tokenization. And so representation is not only the face value understanding of, you know, three hurrahs for having more women of color, but whose voices is really being included in this conversation. And I think this idea of invisible labor comes to mind, where we'll take the aesthetic representations of people of color without really understanding how it's people of color that are being disproportionately affected alongside the supply chain. Mm -hmm. So for me, like our understandings of sustainability in multiple dimensions also means understanding the different modalities of what sustainability is. And so if that conversation is not pervading how the brand operates on an internal level, it kind of goes amiss. The cemetery grounds I wander through them aimlessly So, of course, in the beginning, we talked about how sustainability centrally has nothing to do with monetary wealth, really. But today, obviously, sustainable fashion is largely seen as unaffordable, at least in comparison to mass-produced fashion, whose price tags most people have become accustomed to as the norm. So my question is, if sustainable fashion, especially ones that are truly handmade by artisans that honor traditional craft necessarily need to cost more to be ethical and place a higher value on the natural resources that are being used. How do we navigate this topic, given that there is so much systemic injustice already in our society, but also that we do have to work towards sustainable fashion? 
which does come with a higher price tag, besides obviously making the most of what we have and participating in the used economy. Yeah, I think that that's something I struggled with because for one, like the the answer that you usually get with it's like, I can't afford sustainable fashion, as you mentioned, is to say, oh, well, there's the secondhand market and there's using what you have. But I think that that's often like, it's not looking at the core of the issue. And so I think for me, that's why I have made it a point in my own work to kind of take a step back from you seeing, you know, voting with your dollar as my only means of contributing to this movement. Because to be frank, in my own opinion, it's like to, to have our participation in larger, this larger idea of decolonizing the fashion industry can't be limited to a consumer act. And so what I've you know, started to put my attention and energy towards is actually doing more organizing efforts in downtown Los Angeles, where I'm based, to work alongside the garment worker community that is already organizing. Something that I think about is like, a lot of my own experience growing up, what coming from a low income family was obviously buying secondhand and thrifted, but obviously we participated in the fast fashion uh, world. And I, I will never shame anyone who participates in fast fashion because of a need for new clothes and not being able to afford the other means. And so I think we really need to take a step back and look at this from a larger perspective of there are larger systems at play here. And sometimes we have to attack the beast that is often fast fashion and the way this industry inherently operates rather than putting all of the onus on consumers. And so I think that goes back to the idea of policy and organizing and making inherent shifts. So there's not such a huge rift between the sustainable fashion market and the fast fashion market. Something I've noticed a lot is we don't think about the ways to address the way the fast fashion industry exists as it already is. As important as it is to have an alternative market, the fast fashion market is continuing to expand and exploit workers. So how can we put our energy there as well? And so we talked about Los Angeles. You've spent some time documenting what's been happening to garment workers right here in LA, a city that many people view as being progressive in social and environmental issues. So what do people need to know about the label made in Los Angeles or made in US made in the USA and what can't we take for granted with this description? So I will talk a little bit about the garment worker landscape in Los Angeles. Um, and so Los Angeles is one of the last major manufacturing hubs of garment domestic to the U.S. The garment cut and sew industry is actually Los Angeles' second biggest industry. And we know that it's employing over 50,000 individuals, but that number is probably a gross underestimation of how many workers are actually in this industry. And that's because 50,000 workers is a number that we have of registered factories. But the garment worker landscape and garment working industry in LA is largely underground and undocumented. So because of the largely undocumented workforce, the industry is rife with labor exploitation. The average hourly wage of garment workers in Los Angeles is about $6 an hour, which by no means is legal. But going back to the undocumented status of many workers, which is often weaponized, this is what we see that is happening. Um, what's also important to note is that the garment industry in L.A. operates on a piece rate a lot of the time, which means that workers are being paid per piece they make as opposed to the hour. And this piece rate can be as low as three cents. 
So this peace rate has been along for a long time. And the peace rate is technically legal if a worker can make up to the minimum wage per hour. But because a lot of workers don't know their rights, and again, undocumented underground nature of the industry, the peace rate has been weaponized. 20, 30 years ago, the peace rate could be in a way to kind of incentivize workers to make a little bit extra cash if they're fast on their hands. But now the peace rate is creating to this environment where workers are producing as fast as they can, not taking lunch breaks, bathroom breaks. And so again, most workers making about $6 an hour. And so this is the landscape that we have domestic to the U.S. And thinking about this idea of invisible labor, a lot of this is related to privilege, right? I think going back to these simplified notions we have of the global north and the global south, we see the global south as a place where such conditions are inherent to the landscape. But also in the global north, we have to understand how these conditions continue to exist in our backyard. And this is an economy that has profited off marginalized communities. The nature of this undocumented workforce in Los Angeles, the way they're kind of being exploited, is often by design because the fast fashion industry is predicated on a docile workforce to continue the way it does. And so I think those are all very important things to know about what's happening here in the U.S. as well. I was just speaking with another podcast guest, I believe it was Rob Hopkins, who talked about how this pandemic is acting like an MRI scan to really highlight and amplify what had already already been going on. You recently discussed on Instagram how COVID-19 has impacted the fashion industry. So I'm wondering if you can speak to that, uh, maybe in the global picture, but of course, also with the Los Angeles fashion industry as well. COVID has definitely exposed the cracks in the system that were already there, but now it kind of has a magnifying glass. So in the global context, specifically in Bangladesh, which is a hotbed for production as well, we have seen that the way things usually work in global supply chains is that suppliers are paid weeks, sometimes months after delivering the product they have ordered or they have made. And so factories often front the cost of materials and labor themselves in the interim. And so because of COVID, we've seen a lot of major brands cancel orders on the contractual basis of force majeure, which basically says that there is some act act of God, something beyond their hands that is making them cancel this order, in which case they used COVID. A lot of these brands, which you could actually see a list of these brands on remake.world, which has created an amazing pay-up campaign. These are brands that most likely have the bottom lines to pay garment workers. And the garment worker community, again, is the one that is being hit the hardest because now these factories have all of these orders that have been completed and garment workers are not being paid. And so that's the context in you know places like Bangladesh. In Los Angeles, we have a, kind of an interesting scenario here because once COVID hit, there was kind of two subsections of their garment worker populations. There were those that were immediately out of work because all apparel manufacturing came to a complete halt but they do not have the ability to apply for unemployment because of their undocumented status a lot of the time. And so there was that population. But on the other hand, a lot of these apparel uh, factories 
turned to PPE production centers and garment workers now became essential workers. It's very important to note here that garment workers are returning to the same sweatshop conditions that they would have pre-COVID. And so that means going into factories that don't have any social distancing practices, have a lack of ventilation and sanitation. And the irony is a lot of these garment workers aren't even getting masks from their employers, even though they're producing PPE equipment. Mm. And so I think this is a very important thing to note because a lot of the workers that we now consider quote-unquote essential are being forced back to work not because they want to but because they have to and that is due to a lack of protection from the state or financial insecurity. Right so from mainstream media we hear a lot about how different industries and different clothing manufacturers are pivoting to you know create masks for for people's safety But this is a big piece of the picture that they leave out is the condition of the workers and a lot of whom, as you mentioned, are undocumented, which really limits them and prevents them from having the power to stand up for themselves in fear of retaliation and also in fear of deportation as well. Yeah, and this culture of this fear of speaking out is very interesting to note because within Los Angeles, what we've noted is when workers do attempt to speak out, they are threatened with deportation from ICE. And it becomes a very you know, difficult situation. But even if you are undocumented, you are entitled to the minimum wage. So a lot of the activism that is being done in LA at this moment is about educating folks of their rights. I, I kind of want to talk about, you know, recent instances where we talk about like how factories treat their garment workers. But I also think it's very important to see how brands are also complicit within this larger system. Um, Because in 2016, the Department of Labor did an investigation in Los Angeles, which revealed that a lot of well-known fashion brands do not pay enough for their garment orders to enable factories down the supply chain to comply with minimum wage laws and overtime laws. And so an example I could kind of share about that is about one year ago, the Garment Worker Center, which is a garment worker led organization in downtown LA that does a lot of this organizing. They had a campaign against Ross, um, which was one of the brands that were kind of found within this Department of Labor investigation. And so there were four workers within the Garment Worker Center alone that were owed $800,000 between four workers. And this wasn't an accusation. This was a case that they took to the labor court and won because they started collecting all the documents and proof of what was happening in regards to wage theft. However, Ross kind of avoided accountability and kind of blamed the factory. And so what we are seeing now is this culture where brands avoid accountability by blaming the factories, factories (laughs) avoid accountability by, you know, blaming the brands, etc. And garment workers are left without protection. And so This goes back to the importance of organizing within this space to change the legal landscape to make sure that this doesn't happen. And so the Garment Worker Center has just introduced the Garment Worker Protection Act, also known as SB 1399. And so basically what this act would do is, one, abolish the peace rate that I mentioned before, because the peace rate, because it is technically legal, makes it that workers are being paid literally 
cents per piece they make, again, making about $6 an hour. But more importantly, the bill would kind of change the definition of a garment manufacturer because brands are often able to say, we, we are not garment manufacturers because the nature of subcontracting in this industry. And so now factories and brands would both be accountable when garment workers uh, have wage claims or take cases to the labor court and win. Because that instance of the four workers being owed $800,000 is just one of many examples of prior to this point, no one was held accountable. But hopefully, once this act is passed, this will have huge implications for creating a culture of accountability within the fashion industry. So this is definitely a huge and important step in the right direction. A lot of people are looking at the pandemic right now as a time that we necessarily have to view as a as an opportunity for us to reset and rethink a lot of things. And unfortunately, it has, of course, disrupted a lot of people's livelihoods and for better or worse, also disrupted many industries. What are your thoughts on what other changes we need to implement from here on out? In addition to this bill that hopefully will be passed when this, by the time this episode airs, what else do you think needs to be done for us to work towards that future of a fashion industry that is truly sustainable, regenerative, and just to its core? Yeah, one of the most important ideas that I think we really need to hone in on as an industry is worker-driven social responsibility. So before we understand what that is, we have to understand what corporate social responsibility is, or CSR. So CSR is a concept that corporations have the responsibility of making sure that human rights are being respected and protected in their operations. But often CSR is characterized by voluntary commitments, broad standards that mostly mirror local law. Um, ineffective monitoring mechanisms, and a lack of enforcement. And so oftentimes CSR is seen as corporate self-regulation. And so obviously I think this shows the importance and need of third-party audits and accreditations, but most importantly, this introduces the importance of worker-driven social responsibility, which I think LA is a perfect example for. So worker-driven social responsibility is founded on the idea that in order to achieve meaningful and lasting changes in human rights protections, this responsibility must be worker-driven. And I think I really want to hone that idea in because within the sustainable fashion industry, we have successfully changed this idea of not making the artisan or garment worker invisible. But are we really assigning, you know, agency and access for garment worker and voices to be a part of this conversation? I think that's something this movement has lacked in. So within this worker-driven social responsibility, workers are educated on their rights, which is something in LA we've seen this you know, lack of education of what workers' rights are is what really allows exploitation to thrive. So that's number one. Number two is making this enforcement focused. So, you know, when there are complaints, workers are able to kind of share those complaints in a in a setting that is independent of a workplace. And this is also based on legally binding commitments, whether that is the introduction of certain bills that can really change the landscape or having things like accords on fire and safety that brands have to sign to make their commitment legally binding. And that also goes into third party inspections and things like that. 
So at its core, I think we need a whole paradigm shift of who has access and voice in this industry. And for me, my politic and my activism will always be rooted in being an ally for garment workers, because as consumers, there's often a huge onus that is placed on us to kind of figure out what brands are doing what correctly. But obviously that transparency and first point of access is something that consumers don't really have. And so I think because workers are those that are disproportionately affected by this industry, the change has to be led by them too. And we could all support that. Mm, thank you for sharing this. What What are your suggestions on what our listener can do as an active citizen to support our garment workers as you've been doing and also to help decolonize fashion as a larger picture goal that we have to work towards? Yeah, I would say there's a growing culture of accountability when it comes to brands. And so I would say continue contributing to this culture of asking questions Challenge the idea of what's become the quote unquote norm in our modern day systems, because a lot of the time these systems have normalized violence and are predicated on violence as a means to make money, such as fast fashion. So that's the first one. And then in terms of decolonizing the fashion industry, I think the most important thing that we can all do is reorient your relationship to sustainability and consumption. And COVID kind of lends itself to this, right? Really questioning, what do I actually need? And then, you know, getting more tangible with your relationship to producing things such as fashion. Uh, and I think doing so really will amplify the artistic value of creation, given the time, labor and skill it requires. And we can operate with a lot more. Um, we can operate with a lot more admiration uh, for the craft that is fashion. And then, if you have the ability to support small ethical brands that are doing things sustainably, do that because at this time, smaller brands are really having a tough time, and a lot of corporations will come out of this relatively unscathed. So think about where you can contribute if you have that capacity on a monetary level. So it is www.adimay.com. That's A-D-I-M-A-Y.com to check out Aditi's stunning blog. And you can also follow her on Instagram at Aditi Meyer. That's A-D-I-T-I-M-A-Y-E-R. And I just have to say that you really have to follow her. Her work is absolutely stunning. The content is deep and it's just highly impactful. So guaranteed you will learn something profound just by following her work there. So definitely go follow her on Instagram. And she's also on Twitter at Aditi Meyer and on Instagram, her other account for her photojournalism work at Aditi Meyer Studio. Aditi, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and for inspiring us to look at sustainability through a broader and a deeper lens. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Um, a return to indigenous wisdom is the first step towards decolonization. You were listening to Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, I would love to have your direct support on Patreon at greendreamer.com support so that I can keep this independent show going and accessible for everyone. Patreon is where our guests' final five tips, personal mantras, and additional suggested readings will be shared from now on, alongside some bonus content and sometimes author book giveaways as well. So if you're able to join starting from $2 per month, again, it's greendreamer.com support. 
Today's song feature is Yaro by Kim Anderson, and I also want to thank our audio engineer Scott Donnell and our post-production content manager Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate you so much, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. The grass beneath the trees.